welcome to another episode of Acts of the Blood God, U.S. Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cat Bailey. Joining me is Mike Williams, our reviews editor. Hello, hello, folks. How's everyone doing today? I'm doing fine. How about you? I'm doing great. It's another excellent day, and it's Friday, so the weekend's here. Well, I mean, everybody will be listening to this episode on Monday, but the point stands. Hooray for Friday. Indeed. Hooray for Friday and hooray for Monday, kicking off another excellent week, hopefully. We just uh, seriously depressed somebody who's sitting in traffic, heading into work or something. (laughs) I'm sorry, guys. As always, thank you for supporting Axel Blood God. You can find me on all of the social channels. I'd be at the underscore catbot. You check us out on US Gamernet. Mike is at Automatic Zen. You should subscribe to our newsletter. You can find information for that on the main page. We put that out every Wednesday. And I'm sure there's something else. Oh, yeah, you should rate our show. If you're enjoying this, go over to iTunes. Give us a positive review this week. We are going to be going through everything that's happened across games in RPG news. And, of course, we're also going to finally, 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 (laughs) because we're running out of time for this, uh, continue on with the top 25 RPG countdown, uh, which I feel like was a little cursed, Mike, because I've been trying to get people on the show weeks now to do this one and mysterious accidents continue to befall them actually no they just um have something else they need to do so uh welcome to the show mike i'm i'm the i'm the last choice but no i'm going to put everything into this as if nadia was here with us in spirit because she's still on slack talking to us occasionally she's just busy (laughs) she is busy all right Let's take a look at what's been happening on the site. Of course, the big news of this week is that Respawn came out and released Apex Legends, which is the, well, it has a good chance of being the biggest game of 2019, but it's not an RPG, so we don't really care about it. Uh, What we do care about from EA, potentially, is coming out next week, and that is Anthem. And Mike, you wrote a thing about, at, at my behest, about how uh, Anthem can avoid befalling kind of what happened to Star Wars The Old Republic. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, I actually enjoyed Star Wars The Old Republic back when it came out, but it it definitely soared high for uh, or so, and then EA uh, was like, yeah, these numbers are going down, and then they turned it into free-to-play. And that was sort of seen as the the death. Like, if you look up Star Wars The Old Republic failure, that's the point that is seen of the game being a failure, even though it's still operating today and still running. But it's it's definitely not high uh, about where EA wanted it to be. And, I mean, that came down to uh, a couple of different reasons, uh, one of which is it didn't quite deliver the experience that people wanted from bioware it was bioware austin which was a different new offshoot created just to make star wars the old republic people expected something closer to the dragon age the mass effect that deep story those interesting characters the uh unique choices but sort of grafted onto a MMO, an ongoing live service game. And really what the Old Republic delivered 
it tried a lot of that, but it felt a lot like WoW plus Star Wars, which yeah. however you want to, however you want to call that, like World of Star Wars or World of Warcraft, Star Wars, whatever. That that's what they ended up delivering. It certainly didn't help that it was following on from two games that had really rich stories in Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic and KOTOR 2. There were characters that I feel like some people considered to be left dangling and were hoping that their stories would get a kind of satisfactory resolution in Star Wars The Old Republic, and that never really happened, and... In fact, uh, my understanding that right now is that there's kind of a an arc in Star Wars The Old Republic that just keeps going and going and going, and it's gotten to the point where people just want it to end so that they can have any kind of closure, because it's either just really bad, or it's just been dragging on way too long. Yeah, you can't, you can't run a story forever. You have to sort of... Uh, WoW has settled into uh, this having an overarching story, and each expansion story sort of crests and ends. And they'll bring up subplots in the middle of that that will lead into the next expansion, but you at least feel that you can play an expansion and feel that a story has a beginning, middle, and end. And the same is true of Final Fantasy XIV. Uh, and the interesting thing is, uh, as I noted pointing out to a Reddit thread where former Old Republic lead designer Daniel Erickson uh, dropped in to say some things about the game. Uh, he noted that the original plan was something close to how uh, Final Fantasy XIV operates, which is that they want to uh, offer that epic story uh, with all of the extra MMO stuff around it, but they're content with the idea that the player will play through that story and then unsubscribe or leave for a while and then return for the next content drop. And that was what they originally, which probably would have fit more in the that Bioware mold, sort of this idea of Knights of the Old Republic 3 that is just an ongoing, endless thing. But ultimately, I, it sounds like they got more pushback from EA as a publisher uh, to make something that competed directly with WoW. And as I noted in the article, trying to compete directly with anything, like, is already a bad place to start. Well, I mean, they were like, what? It's World of Warcraft plus Star Wars, one of the most bankable franchises in the world. I mean, it's a given. It should be doing uh, WoW numbers. Why isn't this doing WoW numbers? Well, sir, uh... It's kind of hard to be World of Warcraft. <laughs> World of Warcraft is kind of its own distinct thing, and MMORPGs were already starting. We're starting to get a little bit tired by 2011. Yeah, and and you can't, uh, as I said, you can't. People have a first mover advantage. Whatever's already there is there and has all of the users. If you want to take those users, or if you want to reach that same spot, you actually have to be better than what's already there. You can't just be as good as. And Old Republic was, I thought it was pretty good, but it was just as good as WoW. And that's not enough to pull people from WoW, or to reach WoW numbers being... I don't think it was anywhere near as good as WoW. Because while it maybe had a better story, uh, yeah. certainly... All of the things that came after that story were pretty lacking 
almost from the start. Yeah, and that's another one. The end game was a uh it was light. It was very light. And you need to, if you're going to offer an online service game, realize that players are always going to consume content faster than you create it. And so you need to have something at the end game for them to do, uh, to keep them interested while you're making other stuff. And you can either do that through the rating model. A lot of things that have, uh, consistent raid content drops, Final Fantasy, does a new uh, story, uh, main story quest edition every three months or so. Uh, however you're going to do that, that's fine. Daily quests, weekly quests, PvP. But you need to have all of that stuff in place before you launch. And, uh, for example, we have the Division 2 coming uh, very soon in March. And Ubisoft has learned from the Division 1 that you need to have that stuff ready. So part of what they're crafting with the Division 2 is a game that is in-game focused. They know that, yes, you need the campaign getting you all the way through the leveling experience, but you also need to have something for players to do once they're max level. I don't think it was helped by what it seems if, as if EA cut bait on Star Wars The Old Republic way too fast. Real quick. And didn't give it the support it needed to really flourish. It had some expansions, if I recall correctly, but not certainly nothing on the order of either Final Fantasy XIV or World of Warcraft. Uh, two MMORPGs that I would say are kind of the, the gold standard still, even though World of Warcraft has had its share of problems, as you wrote about on the site not too long ago. Uh, yeah, you got to keep supporting this game. And from what I can tell, uh, the Star Wars The Old Republic is down to a skeleton crew, basically, for developers, basically just keeping the lights on. They haven't really had much in the way of any significant content. Uh, they don't, they're not even really putting in major raids. They're just putting in bosses, <laughs> additional bosses to fight, which is, is a bummer. Like, I think that Star Wars fans... And the old Republic fans who have stuck around with it for this long kind of deserve better. I mean, I think there's a pretty solid, you know, X number of hours, tens of hours to put into every character. And the stuff at launch is pretty strong. But the unfortunately, the drop off in quality is extremely steep after you get past the launch content. Yeah, and they, they've had a few... Uh, digital expansions and a sort of an actual expansion in the form of uh, Knights of the Fallen Empire and Knights of the Internal Throne, which came out in 2015 and 2016, respectively. There is a definite feeling that EA has sort of forgotten about it, even though it's still getting updated. Its last update was in December of last year, um, but it's nothing compared to, say, uh, World of Warcraft or Final Fantasy XIV, which not only have these consistent patches of new content, new raids, and new whatnot, but also every two years they both have their own expansions, which are additional paid content, which feels more meaningful. Yeah. So when I look at Anthem, I feel a little bit of skepticism that if EA encounters even a little bit of problems with Anthem or if that they won't be able to stick with it long enough to really make it work 
and we'll have another Star Wars Sealed Republic situation. Though they're being like, oh, we're making all the right moves. We're going to have tons of Endgame content out of the gate. I feel like they made a big deal out of Endgame simply because of Star Wars Sealed Republic in some ways. They're like, well, we don't want another situation on like that one. Yeah, yeah. And they, you can tell they really don't. And a lot of people, again, talk about it. It's, it's Bioware Austin. It was created um, from, you know, from the ground up just to build the old Republic. But that still had some Bioware veterans working at the studio. And they spent a significant amount of money sort of making that studio up from the ground up. So uh, you can count Bio, uh, Bioware Austin as much Bioware as, say, Bioware Montreal, which was also built from the ground up to make a new game and then sadly died uh, when Mass Effect Andromeda just failed, burned out. So, so Mike, you could probably talk about this a little bit since uh, you're an MMO guy. I, I was talking about this on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. I said that one of the things that I'm worried about most with Anthem is that the uh, the mechs feel too interchangeable and that EA may have shot themselves in the foot by locking all of the microtransactions and the cosmetic loot progression behind, uh, well, yeah, like behind microtransactions. So you're just buying skins as if you're playing Fortnite, right? Right. Rather than having, why, rather than acquiring loot and seeing like, visual evidence that your mech is improving, uh, you don't have enough ownership over your over your suit, that kind of thing. What are, what are your thoughts on that? When I was playing Anthem. It was uh, during the VIP demo and then sort of the live demo for everyone. It's very well put together, but there's definitely that feeling that the loot doesn't feel as meaningful. And I don't know if that's from a the loot itself isn't actually that meaningful or they haven't really worked out the the sort of the ding, like, here's new gear for you, like the visual sense of it. Um which is interesting because I've been playing the private beta for the division two. And for some reason that like it getting loot in that feels really good. Even though most characters look and sort of play the same, like there are no set classes in that game until you unlock specializations. Like it feels good to get loot. And for some reason in Anthem, while I was playing it, it just doesn't, feel all that great i think there's more variety in between the the javelin classes uh sort of like if you were going with the the basic one i don't know the names of them or the more wizard style one or the big heavy tank one those do feel different but when you're playing sort of the progression again this is potentially just because of the demo it just doesn't feel meaningful to me and if you're playing one of these games, the loot needs to feel meaningful because the loot is really the focus. The loot is what carries like in game tends to be a thing to get more and better loot. If that doesn't work, then you're, you've already, you've already started with a problem. In any case, go check out Mike's star Wars, the old Republic versus Anthem piece over on the site. Uh, let's run through some more RPG news really quickly. Uh, this is a big one. A whole bunch of classic RPG, PC RPGs are coming over to Nintendo Switch, uh, f- courtesy of Beamdog. 
they include Baldur's Gate, among others. Uh, Mike, how excited are you about this news? I, I am very excited. I love every single one of these games. Every one of them. And I am confused and slightly worried about how they're going to play on Switch. Uh, I mean, Why do you it, say that? It's going to take... I mean, they've been on console before. They have. I, I think for me, I, I play Switch uh, portably most of the time. So to make those games work on the Switch's portable screen, I they're going to have to spend a lot of time rethinking the UI, making sure that the text sizes work and, and all that stuff. And I think they'll do it. That's just the, like, my first thought was, yes! And my second thought was, oh, I hope they're going to put in the effort to make those work on Switch. Well, I guess we'll see, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, some of the games that are coming, Baldur's Gate, Baldur's Gate 2, Icewind Dale, Planescape Torment, Neverwinter Nights, Enhanced Editions, and Siege of Dragonspear, all coming over to Nint- Nintendo Switch. I think of all of those, I am most excited about Baldur's Gate 2, and Planescape Torment. I think especially Planescape Torment because that is a really rich and interesting story and would be kind of fun to be able to play portably. Yeah, those are those are my two uh, ones as well. I'm not as jazzed for Neverwinter Nights. I liked it when it came out, but I'm not uh, as a big fan of Neverwinter Nights as I would be of Baldur's Gate 2, Icewind Dale, and Planescape Torment. Those are my three, like... Yes, let's go. Let's make this happen. Yeah. Other RPG news. Yokai Watch 3 is officially out on Friday, February 8th. Uh Mike, do you have any any opinion whatsoever about Yokai Watch? Uh I know that it was really big in Japan for quite a while until it wasn't because level 5 sort of burned it out and didn't really have a a, a direction for it to go. Uh I assume it's still somewhat popular, just not as popular as it was. Uh, so, yeah, it's a pretty typical level five fad franchise. Yeah, <laughs> where it comes out, it runs white hot for a while, and then it kind of just peters out and it's gone. Yeah, I get the feeling that level five, like they 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 can come up with good ideas and good games, but they don't know how to necessarily capitalize on them so it's just kind of like let's do the same thing again and after a while that stops working yeah it's one of those situations in which uh where they're thinking as much about merchandise as they are thinking about the actual games and they're going for this really kind of kid-friendly thing right and ultimately uh, the games that they put out don't have enough depth to sustain the franchise long-term, and then they just keep putting out more and more games. And people are like, well, this is stale now, versus Pokemon, where, uh, and Pokemon is always going to be a natural comparison point, where the secret of Pokemon is that it creates communities. Like, it's deep enough that it can't a community can be sus- sustained with it. Right. Yeah, you're you're not going to find a yokai watch a community being extremely sustained in the same way as a Pokemon competitive community or even the shiny hunting community or whatever. Yeah, and, and there is as I like like going back to the old one. There's a first mover thing there. Like Pokemon was the first. Yokai watch is 
the next one, and that can be popular for a while, but then you have to find some way to differentiate yourself to make yourself better than Pokemon. And I yeah, think pretty, yeah, so you it's the level five difference, yeah. So I it's it's a it's a shame, but I I mean, it's still doing well, it's still doing fine, yeah. It's just not doing as well as it could be, or as well as it did at its peak. I think we have Yokai Watch Defenders who listen to this podcast. So if you are a big Yokai Watch fan, you should drop me a line and let me know and just tell me why exactly I'm wrong about Yokai Watch and why it's so amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the last thing uh, Monster Hunter World is having a Witcher crossover event as of the recording of this podcast. I'm going to go check it out pretty soon. It looks pretty fun. It looks like a wonderful little quest that is geared toward Witcher fans complete with uh, you're you're hanging out with Geralt and you actually have dialogue trees and everything it's great yeah it's it's interesting that these little monster hunter collaborations keep coming out i mean it it's great cuz uh, it gives capcom a little bit more spice to monster world while we wait for iceborne to come out but it's good to see uh, Geralt around since uh uh, we're not getting another Witcher game for some time now. Uh, yeah, it'll, it might be like six, seven years before we see another Witcher game, if that. Yeah, I mean, we we might. Uh, they're, they're obviously thinking about it because they just uh, settled with the uh, author of the original Witcher books. Um, he was a little, uh, if you don't know the story, he sold the rights to the game for something absurd like $9,000. And he didn't expect it to blow up the way it had. So CD Projekt Red has sort of has been working with the legally acquired license of for the $9,000 and haven't had to pay him anything else. Um, so he's been uh, a little bit angry about this and hasn't necessarily been able to do anything about it, but they just, uh, for some undisclosed terms recently, I think last month actually, said, yeah, we're going to give him some money, and he'll be happy, and yay. Yay. <laughs> so maybe they're already starting work on A Witcher 4. We won't see it for quite a while, because obviously cyberpunk is their focus. But uh, I, I think maybe that news is the, the sort of, hey, we're we're thinking about it on a corporate level. I think it's interesting that uh, CD Projekt Red... Uh, is farming out Witcher to things like Soul Calibur. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He was he was a, in Soul Calibur as a fighter, and now he's in Monster Hunter. And who knows where Geralt will appear next? Who knows where Geralt will appear next? Probably in some other crossover thing. Uh, but he's like more or less retired in after Witcher Three. So yeah, no, and that's uh, that was one of the things. Uh, in my review of Blood and Wine, the fact that it was such a wonderful uh, sort of send-off to Geralt. Like, you've done enough, now's your chance to retire and live a good life. Last thing uh, on this, and I, so I went and checked out a uh, an MMORPG earlier this week. It's called New World. Are you familiar with it? Uh, yes, I am familiar with it. I am familiar when Amazon announced it as, as one of their game studios' first games, and then they stopped talking about it completely. 
Yeah, it was kind of pitched a little bit as an MMORPG, but it's much more of a survival MMO meets competitive MMO. So you spend a lot of time gathering stuff and crafting stuff, and then you're building player settlements, and you are battling against other players and trying to grab territory. It reminds me a little bit of EVE Online or maybe Warhammer Online from back in the day. Uh, there was some controversy about the subject matter, Mike. Uh, I mean, I can guess because uh, I assume colonization is is one of yeah. the sort of uh, side angles that you. It's can a fantasy sort of world, from. of yeah. course. It's not it's not North America, but the the implication is pretty clear. Yeah, so uh, perhaps they will uh, be able to navigate that. Perhaps they'll actually be able to launch because the first Amazon Game Studios game was Breakaway which uh, launched into early access, then saw significant changes, and then was shuttered completely. So hopefully it does better. On the positive side, it is pretty. The Lumberyard engine does work well. Uh, I think that a competitive MMO in which you're building settlements and working with large guilds to beat other guilds uh, certainly has promise. EVE Online has shown that much, especially if you're willing to build it out. The systems seem sufficiently complex on the face of it. And I like the kind of medieval slash uh, 18th century look of the different characters. Like the character that I was playing as was the plague doctor kind of knight person. (laughs) And you can, like, craft all of their armor and everything, so you got a lot of ownership over your particular characters, a lot of loot going on, and then there are large-scale battles over uh, enemy forts and that sort of thing. I think the thing that kind of makes me worried a little bit is it's going to probably be compared to EVE Online and probably unfavorably compared to EVE Online. And the other thing is that I, I don't... It has some interesting veteran talent behind it, uh, people who have come over from Tryon and World of Warcraft. So it has a little bit of the pedigree, but it's being developed by a studio that used to be Double Helix Games, and this is the studio that was behind Front Mission Evolved. It was not... The games that it made were not good, Mike. They were really, really not good. I hope, for the sake of this game, it has been completely transformed as a studio. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, they did have one uh, modest hit, and that was rebooting Killer Instinct for Microsoft, and that actually turned out really well. Well, They were doing that in conjunction with Iron Galaxy, though. uh, Well, Iron Galaxy uh, took it at the end, uh, after Double Helix left to go under... So, really, their only good game is Killer Instinct, which (laughs) is not... Uh, sort of the best uh, place to start. Well, as a as a mecha fan, I still have ill feelings about what a flaming garbage pile uh, Front Mission Evolved was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's another one of those uh, franchises that Square has just uh, not done anything with. It's it's very mm-hmm. it's a sad what a, what a shame, and it's also kind of strange because you would think that Front Mission. Uh, I don't know. Tactics RPGs might ultimately have a limited amount of public interest, so maybe that's why they haven't picked it up. But it's a shame, because Front Mission was pretty rad. Uh, Speaking of rad 
classic RPGs. We're going to continue on with our top 25 RPG countdown, so don't go away. All right, Mike, number 20. It's time for our top 25 RPG countdown. Last week's entry in our top 25 RPG countdown list was Dragon Quest V. And by last week, I mean a little while ago, because God forbid we keep knocking these out week after week. We got distracted, okay? (laughs) But we're going to continue on with number seven on our list. And number seven is Fallout. War. War never changes. The Romans waged war to gather slaves and wealth. Spain built an empire from its lust for gold and territory. Hitler shaped a battered Germany into an economic superpower. But war never changes. So when I started the series, I said that there would only be two series that would have multiple entries on this one, and Fallout is one of them. And... Mike, the reason that I put Fallout on this list, um, in addition to Fallout New Vegas, is that I, I feel that Fallout and Fallout New Vegas are two very different games, and they both deserve to be recognized in their own way. Fallout New Vegas, in many ways, is a tribute to the classic Fallout in Fallout 2. It has a great story in its own right. It does so many things really well, but... Uh, the original Fallout, just because Fallout New Vegas is on this list doesn't mean that the original Fallout shouldn't also be recognized. It has kind of carved out its own place in history. And I feel like any list that that you have to make of a top 25 RPGs, like you'd just be remiss if you don't have Fallout on it. Yeah, I would definitely agree. And uh, Fallout, the original, has sort of... It's one of those keystone games. There are always games that come out that sort of reverberate out through history and make other things happen. And Fallout is definitely one of those games, because I I think without Fallout, you don't get a lot of those other later interesting RPGs as well. Uh, Sort of all of Obsidian, uh, In Exile, uh, Josh Sawyer... Like all of those people who create some of the best RPGs today were inspired by games like Fallout. Yeah, the original, I mean, if you think about it, there were a couple of distinct periods of PC RPGs. The first period was in the 80s, and that was the the halcyon days of Ultima and Wasteland and those kinds of games, the, the hardcore dungeon crawlers, roguelikes. And then you get into the late 90s, and then you have the isometric RPGs. You had Black Isle Studios and uh, Baldur's Gate, Bioware, and that kind of thing. And I would say Fallout really kind of helped kick that off in a lot of respects. And we were a, coming a year after Diablo, and a lot of people were wringing their hands that Diablo was a super dumbed-down version of the classic PC RPG. And Fallout came out and said, no, nah, no, we're not. In fact... PC RPGs can still be extremely smart and amazing. They picked up the baton from Ultima, which had transitioned into Ultima Online and was starting to kind of fade away since being acquired by EA because EA kills everything. (laughs) And it 
while it sold modestly, it was it afforded, it was afforded a really great critical reception, and uh, of course, the rest was history. Mike, what was the first time you ever heard of Fallout? Um, I've as I've said before, I was actually not a PC uh, RPG Mike. player back in the day. Back in the day, in fact. My gateway drug to all of that was Knights of the Old Republic on the original Xbox. And then once I got that, then I went back and started playing games uh, like Baldur's Gate, Planescape Torment, and Fallout 1 and Fallout 2. So you probably played Fallout 3 before you got uh, to the original Fallout. Uh, I think I might have. I'm, I, I'm most not, people. Yeah, I'm not sure about the timeline, but yeah, I think I might have played Fallout 3 before I played the original Fallout. In doing so, I actually, like, the original Fallout sort of soured me on Fallout Modern. Not that I think they're bad games, they're just not necessarily what I want from Fallout. They're they're very different things, right? Yeah. Fallout, Fallout 1 and 2 are about, I mean, they're certainly about exploration and everything, but they have a turn-based bent. They're way more focused on storytelling and especially making decisions in the world. You certainly make decisions in the Bethesda fallouts and you have some impact in the world, but I feel like their storytelling is much more centered on little vignettes in which you make small-scale decisions and then you move on. Yeah, and and I mean, part of this is definitely, I, I, I think we lost something in the shift to uh, more fully voiced and motion captured characters, and that it it's harder to allow for a ton of decisions, because you have to voice all those lines. Whereas older games like Baldur's Gate, Fallout, all the Ultima games are all text based, so they can create these huge sprawling chains of choices and dialogue trees that allow for sort of more interesting role play. I mean, the original Fallout was voiced too, though. But only a little bit. Like, not a... Was it fully voiced or only in time? I'm trying to remember now. Yeah, Fallout... The original Fallout isn't fully voiced, but it does have voices, yes. for sure. And it has people like Ron Perlman, and <laughs> yeah, it's good voice, good voice acting for the most part. So, but yeah, you're right. By in being fully voiced, and people expect that from a AAA game. If you're not fully voiced, people are kind of like, mm, you're, uh, you're, you're somehow lesser in the minds of people, I guess, which is unfortunate. Yeah, because uh, yeah, uh, New Vegas does the best it can to sort of reach for what Fallout 1 and 2 were. Um, but even then, it doesn't quite sort of get to that level of, I'd, I'd say, what's the rest way, detail, uh, or that level of choice. So let's talk about a little bit about the history of the original Fallout. So it's kind of a spiritual successor to Wasteland, which was made in part by Brian Fargo. Brian Fargo, of course, was, I believe, the head of Interplay at that time. Brian Fargo's been on the show before. Uh, shares a lot of the basic concepts, like settings and, and things like that. The main difference being that, A, it was on Apple II, so it was necessarily a lot more simple, uh, simpler. And also, it was a squad-based game. So you have four characters rather than a rather than a single character. And in having a single character, Fallout was able 
to give you a lot more choice, I feel. So how familiar are you with the original Wasteland, Mike? Uh, not at all. I really, my, my basic, uh, knowledge. And in fact, uh, uh, we were talking about this previously. I, my, my big hole in fallout knowledge is the fact that I have not played wasteland one or wasteland two, which was made by Brian Fargo's in exile entertainment sort of as a spiritual successor for fallout one and two. Wasteland and Fallout both have this really kind of road warrior type vibe to them. They're both set in the desert of New California or like they're they're set in the desert, basically. And they uh, and uh, you're fighting a lot of mutated creatures and then everything that the horrors that follow a post nuclear civilization. And you are the wanderer trying to stay alive amidst all of this all of these crazy things that are happening to you the difference i think is that fallout added in a kind of retro future type uh, aesthetic to it which was immediately immediately memorable right because uh, one of the first things you see is a kind of 1940s 19, early 1950s style video explaining the vaults and everything and then the camera slowly pulls out and you're seeing advertisements for Chevrolets and everything, and then you see the ruins of the world around you. It's a really striking visual, I think. Yeah, and I, I, I think, like in the original Fallout's, that sort of '50s, '60s kish was a commentary for uh, sort of nuclear warfare and what they had sort of lost. And I, I think in the modern Fallout's, it's just a thing that's there, um, which is fine, I guess. But uh, I think the original fallouts were sort of scrabbling for something a little bit deeper uh, than probably a lot of modern games. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the first time I ever saw Fallout uh, was on my friend's PC, and I saw uh, the Pip-Boy. It was a one of those informational videos and uh, it, I just remember the Pip Boy being on fire, or something to that effect. And <laughs> it was this, it was a striking visual that stayed with me until I eventually played Fallout Three years later. But so it, it was created by Interplay. It was developed in large part by Tim Kaine, a programmer who built the engine, and he introduced something called the Special System, which is a kind of a variant of GURPS, which was going to be the original system that they were going to use. And GURPS was the, is kind of a generic D&D system, tabletop system, Correct. Uh, that you can use to build kind of your own role-playing universes, and you can just use GURPS. Uh, special stands for, of course, Strength, Perception, Endurance, Charisma, Intelligence, Agility, and Luck, and it's been used in as far as I can tell, every single Fallout to uh, every single Fallout since you put points into your particular stats, and that affects your character, and uh, that goes a long way toward defining the way that your character acts. If you do not put enough points into your intelligence, your character will be a moron. <laughs> <laughs> right. Our charisma allows you to. Uh pull different dialogue choices out from different people, you know, sort of get information that you normally otherwise wouldn't be able to get. Uh, so those, those special choices mattered. And that's, that's so, key for role-playing. So I mentioned this already. Uh, 
Fallout is very different from the Bethesda Fallouts. Fallout 3 and Fallout 4 were, you know, first-person kind of shooters, a little bit like uh, Skyrim, the Elder Scrolls games, that kind of thing, where you had the VAT system, uh, where you could target things, but it was more or less in real time. This is a turn-based game that relies on action points. It puts a lot more stock into your individual stats, and more importantly, it puts a lot more stat stock into solving solving your problems nonviolently, and this was a thing that became it, it was already popular but it became extremely popular in the late 90s on the pc and i think probably reached its peak with planescape torment a few years later yeah and and we've sort of seen some of that coming back with wasteland 2 uh divinity original sin 1 and 2 that sort of style of it's an RPG, but it's also sort of tactical and strategy-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, Dragon Age Origins was a lot like that. Uh, and then Dragon Age 2 and Inquisition sort of just dropped that idea. Like, it's still sort of there, but not really. Um, it, it's a it's a style of play that I really enjoy. So I was sad to see it go. Uh, as we sort of shifted some of those Western RPGs over to consoles. And then I was glad to see it come back with the rise of crowdfunding and Kickstarter, bringing back some of those uh, smaller genres. Yeah, uh, I just think that people don't have enough patience to actually go through all of these different choices. (laughs) Unfortunately, most people would rather just blast their way out of a situation. And... I think that's reflected in kind of the more mainstream friendly versions, uh, especially of the later Fallout games. And when people complain about Fallout 4, I think they are often lamenting what was kind of lost from the original Fallout, which was you had these extremely dense uh, role-playing trees and everything, and Fallout 4 had, well, let's just say uh, quite a bit fewer in the way of actual choices, and I think that's a huge sticking point for especially original Fallout fans. Yeah, yeah, and and that's that those those abilities to make choices, uh, and not just choices such as like save the puppy or kick the puppy, like well, don't kick the puppy. Yeah, don't kick the puppy, but people will kick the puppy. Uh, because they are like that. That is the evil choice, uh, the renegade and the paragon. But uh, it, it had some more choices that weren't necessarily always good or always bad. And even your good choices tended to have uh, knock-on effects. Like, uh, in, in, I forget what the name of the town is. In one of the first towns, you can uh, choose to either go with the lawman or sort of the local criminal. And if you go with the lawman, yes, you've upheld the law, but if you go with the criminal, uh, he also actually helps the town prosper because he's bringing in more money. So he's doing it through illegal means, but it is helping the town. Whereas if you get rid of him, yes, you've upheld the law, but then all of that money sort of to build up the town and create better resources and prove things isn't there anymore. And those are the kinds of choices that make really interesting role-playing. When Fallout finally came out in 1997, it well, it did okay. It did not do amazingly well or anything, but it did, it did fine. It did well enough to 
warrant a sequel. Uh, Fallout 2 came out not too long after that, but kind of began the long tradition, I think, uh, that would carry on to Obsidian of making sequels that were maybe a little... They were so ambitious that they got a little too ambitious, perhaps. And that's what happened with Fallout 2. Whereas Fallout 1 is often kind of lauded as extremely uh, tight, a really great, tight piece of storytelling. So let's talk about kind of what made it stand out. Uh, We already talked about the dialogue choices and how there's so much more important than combat. And uh, you have four companions um, and Fallout gave the world dog meat. And... I was kind of looking into this, Mike, <laughs> and I don't think we really had like proper RPG companion dogs until the original Fallout came around. I mean, we had in the original Earthbound, we had a dog, a puppy that followed us around. Um, later games, uh, including Final Fantasy VIII, had Angelo, but uh, it was. I feel like Fallout is where it really began. Uh, yeah. And it was really weird because, uh, dog meets, uh, old master was like supposed to definitely be Mad Max, <laughs> which is like a really weird little <laughs> yeah, moment, but again, road warrior, they're just cribbing from world warrior, all games, all great games steal. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. So, uh, but it was great to have an actual dog companion that would be there with you, a pet, uh, because, you know, people engage with pets differently than they uh, engage with people. Uh, we'll, we'll have a game where you can kill uh, scores upon scores of people, but being able to kill like a dog or a cat in that game is also like, why would you do that? Why would you make that a choice? So uh, I, I, I do admit that, that now... Uh, People use animal deaths, uh, close animal deaths. Like whenever you have an animal companion now, there's always that expectation that you're going to kill that animal by the end of the game, aren't you? I get so pissed when they do too. (laughs) Right? Like in uh, I Am Legend, oh, those monsters. Yeah. And you always get that feeling like you start the game and you're just like, oh, you're going to kill that. Don't kill the dog. (laughs) <laughs> As opposed to Fallout 4, where my dog just disappeared for a long time, and I had no friggin' idea where he was. Yeah, yeah. And I then... finally built the doghouse, and then he showed up, and I was like, hooray! <laughs> and, uh, uh I, I guess, is, is this technically a spoiler? The dog meat dies, so this is the beginning of that. Dog meat one dies, and that's... That's sort of, I guess, maybe the beginning of this trope in games. I don't know. Everybody was real sad. <laughs> like, super sad. Like, oh, how could you? Yeah, I was doing research looking for good examples of animal companions in previous games, and I'm sure there are them. But I think that dog meat is one of the, definitely one of the standouts and has just become a mainstay and followed ever since because everybody wants a good dog by by their side. Yeah, yeah, everyone does want a good, happy dog friend that will follow you around and be your friend. Uh, And no one wants your good dog friend to die. Your your human friends, whatever. I mean, (laughs) let them die. But a dog, no. 
I think what everybody kind of remembers, aside from dog meat, I think what everybody remembers the original Fallout 4 was just the sheer degree of freedom that it had to offer. Uh, unlike a lot of games, when you popped out of that vault for the first time into the open world, you didn't really know what you were doing. So kind of like in Dragon Quest V, you would just go out and start exploring and trying to figure out what you're supposed to be doing. And as you did, you would kind of find your way through things. Um, a couple of years ago, I talked to uh, Josh Sawyer about his memories of playing the original Fallout. And he, he talked about, he talked a lot about that freedom and how striking he found it. And he said, I went in and I killed everything and I got back and I got the evil ending. And I'm like, wow, that's so cool. The game's just lets me wait, lay waste to all these things, which was the thing it was like, you could kill everybody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You could literally kill anybody and the game just had to sort of roll with it. Yeah, no, it, you could kill pretty much everybody and it didn't break the game, unlike, say, Skyrim, where characters are just straight up invincible. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's another one of those, uh, to sort of allow for role-playing, you sort of have to plan for certain characters, certain story bits to not be there. And I think that becomes harder uh sort of as your game's presentation gets up to like you definitely don't want to spend hours upon hours doing a cutscene uh with full motion cap and voice acting and editing that is cut because the player killed a character like in the first town or something like that. Josh Sawyer also said, the more I looked at Fallout and I realized that the structure of it allowed me to go straight from Vault 13 to the Necropolis, you can do that. You would never do that on your first playthrough because you don't even know the Necropolis exists. The game's structure actually allows you to do that and you can get the water chip very quickly. Uh, the, Of course, the story is that your vault's water system breaks down. You need to get a new water, water chip. And how you you got to go do that by hook or by crook. <laughs> and that involves defeating the master who is turning everybody into mutants like a dick. And um, yeah, no, it's actually pretty remarkable that the game's like, eh, yeah, if you, if you can get to the, the necropolis, go for it. Good luck. <laughs> Having that kind of open-ended design is extremely friggin' difficult, especially in an RPG where your choices can... Uh, knock, have a knock-on effect that changes everything and potentially breaks the game in many horrible ways. Yeah, and one of the best things also about Fallout is that final confrontation with the Master isn't uh, just a combat-heavy encounter. Yes, there's a lot of fighting like right before that, but your actual confrontation with the game's bad guy is a conversation where you essentially have to do your best to talk him down from his plans. Um, which is just a fascinating sort of philosophy argument between you, but you and you totally can. You can fight him. Yes. Or you can just totally convince him that his plan is folly, in which case he will be like, no. <laughs> and you could do that, which I think was, I mean, other games have done it since, but that moment where you could essentially get the enemy you could convince the enemy of their wrongs and get them to basically commit suicide was a standout moment in the original fallout. And to a lot of something that a lot of people pointed to as like, wow, like this is incredible that how many games let you actually do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not, not many. Um, these days we, we tend to get that last choice. Like, do you want to do this or do that? And then you it's get very binary. Yeah. yeah. You get two different fights or something like that. 
So, uh, I mean, with the original with Mass Effect, you could build up your character to the point where you could get Ceres to kill himself. Yes, and that was one of the best moments of the first Mass Effect, talking him into killing himself like a good soldier. Ah, so good. Yeah, it was really good. But often it was mostly a matter of just max out your stats enough and then it'll unlock the right dialogue choice. Whereas I think that in these kinds of games, you have to really read the dialogue tree pretty carefully in addition to having the right stats. Yeah, and it's it's definitely like you're actually making a different argument, not just you had the correct stats and it opened this new option. So Alec Muir... Uh, wrote about Fallout on our sister site, uh, Rock, Paper, Shotgun, and Alex said, there was no one necessarily right answer, and this applied to the game's main storyline as a whole. You could effectively ignore it all or straight up murder the main quest giver. Fallout was your place to do with as you chose. Sure, Bethesda's take takes on the Fallout formula offered gloss and adrenaline and a new sense of scale, and Fallout 3 isn't too bad at offering conversation-based solutions to your problems, but they never quite managed to offer that same ability to rip up the whole world, which I think is what, I mean, the, the, the interesting thing about the original Fallout was when you left your vault originally, you had a 500-day time limit before the mutant army would come in and completely destroy it, which was an ending. <laughs> you could just be like, eh, screw the vault, bye. <laughs> or you could join the mutant army and then destroy the vault. But... Later versions, I think like version 1.1, did away with that more or less because it the designers discovered that people just liked wandering the world and seeing what they could do with it. It, it was it was a true sandbox game uh, very early on, well, well, well before people really understood the concept of what a sandbox game could actually look like. Yeah, being able to break everything is part of the fun. Maybe that's not uh, the the end that we'll have, but being able to have that option uh, at least adds the illusion of choice. Like, even if yeah. you can break the sandbox, at least that you know that's a possibility makes the choices you do make seem more meaningful. And that's what's great about RPGs, I think. I think RPGs, at their best, can give you that degree of choice and the the level of choice can can vary it can depend on how do you build out your character that that's an interesting choice how do you impact the story and then you have a game like fallout where it's like well here's the world uh here are all you can do a lot of things with it uh depending on your actions so uh have at it right and i can't think of many rpgs many 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 rpgs have tried it most have succeeded in only kind of a limited way. It's rare that it's done very eloquently, elegantly, but Fallout seems to manage to do it. Yeah, because that that's part of the the thing that the 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 gold standard is basically to get back to that original tabletop RPG want. play. People want Fallout, the original. Yeah, um, and if you can hit that tabletop RPG feel on your digital game that's great and it, it, it is harder because at least on a tabletop you have a living dm who's sort of rolling with all of the things so for the digital versions like fallout and planescape and all that you have to sort of plan ahead like how are they going to break this game and uh 
if you do it right, it pays off really well. Uh, in games like Divinity Original Sin, where they like, oh, okay, th- this is what's going to happen. I think the important thing about the original Fallout also was it wasn't, I mean, I called it kind of, it borrowed a lot from Road Warrior, but it wasn't just a Road Warrior uh, knockoff. It had its own distinct vibe and it had, it established so many interesting elements that have become so central to Fallout's lore to this day. Things like the Brotherhood of Steel, for example, a sect of technology, uh, basically a technology worshipping cult who wear cool power armor and can vary from wanting to save the world to being dangerous fanatics, depending on which sect that you end up encountering. People love the Brotherhood of Steel. It was introduced in this game, and your one of your first encounters with them was really I- interesting. You had characters like the Followers of the Apocalypse, and you got and you got to remember that right, this was kind of the adolescence of video games. Games were still kind of finding their way. All of this was extremely freaking new in 1997. Uh, so they took a lot of the. Out of stuff, out of a lot of the work that began in the '80s and expanded it so much into something that ended up being really memorable. Yeah, no, they they really did, and a lot of those uh, characters uh, you brought up, Brotherhood of Steel, Fallout Two introduced the Enclave, which is another uh, faction uh, that has uh, it sort of rised into the Brotherhood of Steel sort of niche. And that has also moved forward into future Fallout games. Uh, Super Mutants, uh, there are a whole bunch of different ideas that started in these few games that moved forward into other Fallouts. Uh, some of them sort of as fan service callbacks, some of them as major parts of future games. Yeah, uh, Shades of Grey and Moral Grey areas weren't exactly common in video games circa 1997. No. They were much more, I don't want to insult comic books, but there was kind of that superhero black and white mentality of good versus evil a lot of the time. and Or you were fighting demons or monsters or whatever. And while Fallout is still fairly broad, it, it also had moments of, well, I would say tragedy, right? Where you get back to your vault and you've saved it, but your overseer is becomes terrified that you're going to convince everybody to leave. And so exiles you. And it's just like, Oh, that's a bittersweet ending. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's part of that, that idea of making it so that choices just aren't pure good or pure evil. There are good choices that you can make that have negative consequences or bad choices that have good consequences. And also, you know, the mix between like good choices that do have good consequences. But making sure that the player has that sort of trepidation in making a choice. Because like when I play Mass Effect and I usually make a good choice, like I can be assured that that good choice will probably have a good outcome. There are a few few occasions where that's not the case but for the most part like if you make a good choice in the game these days you're going to get the good outcome you make a bad choice you get the bad outcome maybe you get different powers or whatever but it's easier to read where the situation is going to roll out when you make a choice in a lot of modern games so let's talk a little bit about the original fallout's legacy i think a lot of people still regard it as one of the kind of the finest rpgs ever made 
every Fallout is inevitably compared to the original game. One of the, uh, I would say one of the criteria of this list, and I've said it over and over again, is does it still hold up? And while it certainly looks dated in a lot of respects, especially uh, especially the characters, <laughs> like they are very simple and uh, they can be a, a little bit hard to get into, I think people still have a ton of respect for the original Fallout. And if anything, it can occasionally overshadow some of the later Fallout games because people are like, well, <laughs> Yeah, great. Good 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 job Bethesda, but you're never going to be as good as the original Fallout. I mean, that is kind of a Bethesda's been able to overcome it, and I think it's more popular among the mainstream, but among RPG fans, there's I'd say a lot of them can think that there's nothing better than the original. Yeah, and and I I think part of that is it like we said before, they're they're the original Fallout 1 and 2 are very different games from the new one. And uh, they were really trying to shoot their shot, and it worked out so well. Um, yes, it is a it's a very ugly game. Because <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, I've gone back and played in it. But the, the choices that you do get still feel interesting. Uh, and it's one of those games that you can look at, and you're just like, Hey, modern developers, just just do this. Do this again, but make it look better. It was really funny too. Like just the fact that you if you decide to make yourself really stupid, you could go back to the overseer and just be like the overseer would be like, Give me the water chip and you'd be like, Dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and when you make your report, if you're dumb, the overseer's just like ah. I'm not I'm not really going to listen to any of this like cuz you're dumb like this is a dumb report. Just just go on, go back to the mutants, leave the leave the vault. Okay, there you go. Good job. Yeah. Yeah. It's something that later game Fallout games ultimately picked up on, but maybe not to the same degree as the original Fallout did. So, I feel like so much of Fallout New Vegas was sort of chasing that that feeling that you had with the original Fallout, but because it was such a complex game, it struggled to do that. Yeah, and a lot of it, it did feel like it was chasing that original feel, and some of that helped because Obsidian was founded uh, by uh, the director of the original Fallout, uh, Fergus Urquhart. Ur- I'm sorry if I, mm. I pronounced your name wrong, sir. Um. So a lot of that sort of DNA uh, ended up in Obsidian. So when they they tried to do New Vegas, it feels like, yes, they're trying to marry what Fallout 3 is at its core with the original Fallout, which is why it's such a fantastic game, in my opinion. So do you have anything uh, to add about the legacy of the original Fallout? I mean, a lot of these people that worked on Fallout uh, moved on to be veterans working on, even today, some of our best games. We talked about Brian Fargo, who uh, started In Exile with Wasteland 2 and Torment, Tides of Numenera. We have Fergus Urquhart, who, of course, went on to make Obsidian, which has done Games like Knights of the Old Republic 2, Dungeon Siege, Pillars of Eternity 1 and 2, Pathfinder, things like that. Uh, Tim Kane, who was, I believe, a programmer, is currently working uh, 
with Obsidian to make Outer Worlds. Yes, and I think everybody is extremely excited for Outer Worlds for that reason. Yeah. So, a, a lot of these people who started on this game uh, and, and cut their teeth, like, it's not just the game itself that sort of resonated down through uh, gaming history. It's also all of these people who worked together to create this original game sort of kept that DNA alive as they separated out and moved to different games. And there are games on this on this very list, this top 25 list, that you can see the DNA of Fallout in them, like uh, Vampire the Masquerade, uh, Bloodlines, which I think is number 22 or 23 on this list. It it ultimately had to be saved from by the community. It got screwed by the publisher, but it was made by Tim Kaine, and you can see that it's trying to do a lot of the same things in the way that that it has super intense role playing with the uh, the various characters, the the different types of vampires that you could be, how different certain vampires could be, and I, I admire that. Yeah, and and uh, the vampire was done with Kane and uh, Leonard Boyarsky, who was a designer on the original Fallout, and uh, Jason Anderson, who I think was a contract artist. Uh, our technical artist on the original Fallout. So uh, those guys end up making Vampire. You got Fallout New Vegas. Like they kept those ideas sort of moving forward throughout the years uh, and even today, which is why, like you said, we're looking forward to the Outer Worlds because we hope that it will have that spark, that original r- real hard role playing spark that uh, tends to make RPGs really fun. Yeah, and I think it explains a lot of the kind of anger toward Fallout 76, because Fallout 76 is the diametric opposite of the original Fallout in a lot of respects, where it, I mean, you're wandering through an open world, I guess, but you're just gathering things. There's no, there are basically no opportunities for actual role-playing. And that really bummed people out. The rich storytelling heritage of Fallout got lost with that game. Yeah, and and I, I can understand why, why people like that. And I and I again, I think Fallout Four has uh, role playing aspects, but I think that the that real hardcore of it is the exploration. Um, what Bethesda does well is build worlds. And yes, you just want to hang out in the world, and so it takes a little bit of the emphasis off the actual storytelling. Though you can find these wonderful vignettes, right? Right. So I, I, I personally can see why people like the modern fallouts, but what I necessarily want from fallout is more of that deeper RPG storytelling and player choice. So I'm really looking forward to the outer worlds. I'm looking forward to wasteland three because I'd, I'd like to actually see if I, I, everyone says the wasteland games are really good. I just haven't played any of them. So uh, I'm looking forward to wasteland three and I, I'm looking forward to what other games come out from sort of the many people who worked on the original fallout. All right. That was number seven on our top 25 RPG list. Fallout is in the books. And next week we are going to be doing the game that is in a classic RPG series, another classic RPG series, 
please look forward to that. In the meantime, if you want to talk about Fallout, make sure to leave a comment on the show notes for this episode or send me a Twitter DM at the underscore catbot or shoot me an email at cat.bailey at usgamer.net. All right, let's continue on to the mailbag. All right, Mike, as usual, we like to read the comments from people who listened to the previous episode and hear what they had to say about the various topics. And the first one is from Victor Hunter, who left a comment saying, here it comes, a reason to talk about Final Fantasy for the After Years. Whether or not you enjoy After Years, the Wii version was the version closest to the original release for Japanese feature phones. The complete collection and Steam versions have redone visuals and trimmed modified content. The Wii version was pixel artist Kazuko Shibuya's first return in the craft in over 10 years and paved the way for Square's ongoing love affair with retro visuals a la Record Keeper. It was also Square's first experiment with episodic content, which we'll see the culmination of in 2042 when Final Fantasy VII Chapter 1 comes out. And really, After Years was always meant to be played episodically. So what you're saying is that After Years is the result is the reason for all of this horror, is what I'm kind of getting. <laughs> We can blame Final Fantasy VII uh, Chapter, Final Fantasy VII Remake, and Record Keeper and After Years. Jeez, I'd expend it from history if I could. Wow, wow. I mean, what what if it's good though? I mean, what Final Fantasy VII Remake? Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's always a chance, I guess. <laughs> but I, I don't have a lot of hope for it. Yeah, I mean, we we just got Kingdom Hearts 3, and for Kingdom Hearts fans, it delivered. So, in our deep heart of hearts, maybe uh, Final Fantasy VII Remake will deliver. And if it does, then After Years is a touchstone in Square Enix history for good. So, we were talking about uh, the Witcher thing earlier uh, earlier in this episode um, with the author. And uh, this is a comment. This is a question, actually. This week was announced that CD Projekt Red has reached an agreement to financially settle with the creator of The Witcher. The comment sections of every article about Sapkowski's desire to be compensated for The Witcher game series' success are 99% full of people who venomously hate him and say he deserves nothing and is a horrible person. Personally, this disgusts me because it seems morally wrong for a company to infinitely exploit the intellectual creations this guy worked on for decades in solitude to create while only giving him a token pittance of a one-time fee. They're even making money off selling off Sapkowski's character to appear in Unrelated by Games by other companies. But more than being dismayed over that injustice, I'm disgusted that game fans have so little respect for the person who dedicates so much of his life to creating a world and characters they supposedly love. If games are considered a valid art form, they should have respect for the actual artists who fundamentally contribute to the art they love rather than blindly worshipping the companies they sell it to them. I'm wondering what your opinions are on this. Mike, what do you think? So I think for a lot of uh, gamers, what's happening there is this feeling that if he had really, like, he should have believed in CD Projekt Red and the power of video games. And the fact that he didn't means that he does not deserve, because uh, again, legally, they didn't have to pay him anything because he made a deal and sold the license for a flat fee. Um, so there's sort of, I, I think 
that venom is from that idea that people are like, why didn't you believe in the games in the first place? If you had, you would have made a different contract for it. To which I say, yeah, to a point. But I mean, if you're making that much money, like you can throw some something the man's way. No, you're not really uh, from probably, I think, two and three. Uh, use some of his characters, but our original story is written by internal CD Projekt Red writers. So uh, I've read three of the novels, and CD Projekt Red didn't really sort of adapt those. They just sort of use characters and then make new stories. I, I can't say that you can point at him and go, these games are purely him. But yes, they should have probably paid him something. And it sounds like that is what's happening now. I think a lot of people um, are extremely venomous toward the writer of The Witcher because uh, for them, The Witcher 3 and perhaps Witcher 2 were their first introductions to the series. And so they naturally associate it with CD Projekt. They're not familiar with the books. And they just are naturally going to side with the studio in that regard. And my, it, it, it seems that the author of The Witcher uh, kind of has, takes a bit of a dim view to, toward video games. So it's a bit of a <laughs> burn the heretic type situation. Yeah, that is true. He did, he was like, uh, someone asked him directly, like, how much do you think the games have helped bring the novels to prominence? And he was just like, not at all. To which I'm like, uh, I mean, I definitely only read your novels because of the video games. So I, I think, yes, you need to sort of acknowledge what CD Projekt Red has done for you uh, in, a, in a certain respect. Because even uh, George R. R. Martin say you got the, A Song of Ice and Fire. Those books were doing really well. But he knows that the HBO TV show, based on his books, raised the profile of his books and of his own name. It lets him go to Comic-Con and hang out with celebrities and travel the world and maybe occasionally think about writing the next entry book entry. But right. mostly he'd rather watch the New York Jets for some reason. So so I, I think to not acknowledge, and, and it probably didn't help uh, that, uh, I believe his name is Sapkowski. Sep Sepkowski, yeah. Um, that the guy who wrote Metro, on the mm -hmm. other hand, is so open about the fact he's like, yeah, no, I wrote Metro, but the games like really helped Metro as a thing reach a whole new audience, and it's only benefited me. All right, Turnbird says, concerning conservation and Shining Force, the first Shining Force did get a port on the GBA. That game is a top-to-bottom remake of Shining Force. The game is story is expanded, new characters are in included and an entire game-wide gimmick of card collecting is included that affects a new exclusive character to my knowledge the gba version is the only existing port of the game all other ports of shining force has been for the original genesis version it may have to do with rotdd having been a joint venture with atlas a shame the additions made for the gba versions were very fun uh, Wellman the second says funny no men no mention of always popular act razor I don't really consider that an RPG it was kind of a what was it a side-scrolling game plus simulation type thing it's not really an RPG but yes it is uh, still very popular 
Yeah, yeah. I, I was just thinking about Act Razor. I forget what I, I was writing. Oh, it was the the Final Fantasy fourteen article uh, about the fact that Final Fantasy fourteen is now the uh, you know hub for all things Square Enix, and they should probably look at Act Razor. But no, Act Razor isn't an RPG, so that's why Blood God doesn't care about it. It's a good game, but it's not an RPG. P-Dub says, spoilers for a 20-plus years old cult classic, Ogre Battle deserves better because it's one of the most metal endings of all time. There is an ending where where you do everything the hero should do through the first half of the game. Then when an evil demon shows up and promises you unmanageable power, you shrug and say everything, say okay. Of course, deals with demons always work, so you usher in thousands of years of unimaginable suffering as the demon double-crosses and kills you at the end. The sheer amount of effort you have to put in to get this ending is immense. There's no way you can get it accidentally. You have to make the choice to appear to be the savior of the people until you can sell them out for an empty promise. And Kid Gorilla says, it is the Blood God's chosen ending. Yes, the Blood God does approve of demons selling everybody out and destroying them. I was about to say, wasn't that one of the Dragon Quest endings? Uh, perhaps uh, you'd have to ask Nadia that one. Yeah, I I think it was because uh, only because I've played Dragon Quest Builders, and that's the impetus for Builders. That from one of the previous games, the hero made the choice to side with the demons, and then the Builders world is the result of that. Nice guy Neon says, "R.I.P. to the friends we lost along the way." <laughs> Much as I hate playing iOS game versions of these games, I did manage to play Chrono Trigger, Secret of Mana, Final Fantasy 3, 2, 5, and The World Ends With You on my phone. But my biggest issue with these games on iOS is if you upgrade your OS enough games, sometimes stop working if the developers don't update them. I just upgraded and I lost like a third of my games that I had on my phone. Your purchases might follow you, but it's just as bad as not having the game. Luckily, I still have all of my Square Enix RPGs available to me. Maybe the others will be updated. But after FF5, I started buying these on my Vita or PC, depending on availability. I'd just rather have them on a platform where I know they'll work without fear of updating my OS. See, this is why you don't upgrade your your OS. I think I'm still on iOS 9. I mean, I'm I'm on Android, so I don't uh, play uh, many mobile games uh, regardless, because... Uh, developers tend to not support Android as well as they do iOS, so I've just sort of given up. I have a iPhone success, so wow. I just assume that if I ever upgrade my phone, it will be destroyed forever. Yeah, so I, I, I prefer not to do that. <laughs> um, right now, I have 99 updates waiting for me. <laughs> Jesus. The unfortunate thing is that if I upgrade all the way up to iOS 12, it'll fix a lot of security uh, issues. So I am always a little afraid that my phone's going to get hacked or something. Yeah, yeah. You, you probably should upgrade your phone. Like, I, my, my phone is getting... I have a Galaxy S7. My phone is definitely getting up in the years, and uh, it has a pixel line that's just broken. So I'm probably going to trade it in sometime this year and get another one, but... Uh, wow, that's... Hold on, Cat. At some point, it, it'll become a noteworthy story that you're still holding on. <laughs> I got a... My housemate has an iPhone 4. Oh, wow. Yeah, 10-year-old phone. Uh, and finally, B. Barry Vertigo, or Barry, uh, says, Hello, Cat. First, I just want to say that I started listening to Acts of the Blood God after Kind of Funny Games Daily, and enjoy it. Thank you, Barry. After listening to you sing 
those praises of Super Robot Wars, and also as a fan of giant robots and turn-based tactics RPGs, I am very into the series. I know the series may never see a legit U.S. release due to the many licensing issues involved with the different shows it encompasses. So is Play Asia the safest way to order a physical copy to play on my PS4 or Vita? My next question is, should I wait for SRWT this March, or should I order V or W instead? Keep up the good work with Black God and U.S. Gamer. Well, uh, per your first question, I have always used Play Asian in the past. Um, I've had problems occasionally getting uh, the game immediately. Uh, and also, there are some... Uh, you have to pay kind of an arm and a leg to get it imported. And uh, finally, uh, Play Asia has done some questionable things on social media that I haven't been a super huge fan of. So I'm not that inclined to... Uh, support play asia <laughs> what are your thoughts on this mike uh i mean i used to uh support play asia and all those extra like hlj for my gundam kits and stuff like that but a lot of that it's on amazon uh, now yeah yeah multinational conglomerate that is destroying everything yes but also the company that can get you stuff from japan and other places quite easily so yeah. uh a lot of my like I, I used to get games through PlayAsia. A lot of that stuff I just buy straight on Amazon from Japan, usually with their local like Amazon JP ships to the US now. So I have a, a Amazon JP account that I just use and buy games there. And their next question is should I wait for SRWT this March or should I order VRW instead? Um I don't know why you would get W because it's a Nintendo DS game and it's pretty old at this point. Uh, SRWV is uh, the preferred one. It is really good, but you sh- uh, but you would have to play it on Vita or PS4. Uh, so you would lose the portability aspect. And SRWT uh, looks really good. It's going to be on the Nintendo Switch. You can pl- much like SRWV. You can play it in English. So I mean, I would recommend SRWT or V. Uh, what it comes down to is how do you want to play it? Do you want to play it on Switch or PS4? Uh, and what shows are most important to you. <laughs> if you want Harlock and Magic Knight Ray Earth and uh, Votums and G Gundam, uh, then get SRWT. If you want Yamato and various other shows like that, then you should get SRWV. Uh, so do some research, look into it. But otherwise, they're mostly pretty much the same these days. <laughs> it just depends on what show you want and what story you want. So... Access the Blood Guys US Gamer Podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Follow us on social media. I'm at the underscore catbot. Mike is at onmagzen and Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. Make sure we we like to read comments and things from people whenever we do this show. So if you want to leave something, you know, leave a note on the show notes on the site under podcast and we'll we'll probably read it on the show so do that uh and of course subscribe to our newsletter which i already mentioned at the top of the show we put it out every wednesday nadia and i uh rotate and we you know we write a nice little essay that you can get into your mailbox about rpgs in addition to the top rpg news but 
Well, it's going to be a busy night week next week. We got Anthem coming out. It's going to be the Final Fantasy VIII anniversary. And by the time you hear this episode, you may have seen a Final Fantasy VIII retrospective on the site. So go check that out. But in the meantime, um, thanks for listening. We're going to keep going through this top 25 RPG countdown the rest of the way, all the way up to episode 200. And don't worry, this this show won't turn into a pillar of salt when this <laughs> when we hit episode 200. We're going to keep going until you tell us to stop or you stop listening, one of the two. But okay, thanks for listening. I've been Cat Bailey and for Mike and myself, thanks for listening and we'll see you again. Happy adventuring. <laughs>